If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn them to Genesis chapter 15. We're continuing our study through the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And this morning we're in chapter 15. Last week we finished chapter 14, having seen Father Abraham defeat the invading armies from the north, led by uh, King Ketelomer and the coalition of armies that invaded Palestine and kidnapped Abraham's nephew Lot. And Abraham gathered together with just 318 of his servants and went after him and rescued Lot and defeated that army. And then on his way back, we saw last week, he was met by two kings. One was the king of Sodom, who sought to tempt Abraham with the spoils of war. And Abraham rejected the spoils of war, and he raised his hand to God Most High and said, it is only from God Most High that I receive my reward. And the other character that he met, the other king, was the king of Salem, this priest king named Melchizedek, who was the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And in this Melchizedek, we saw a foreshadowing, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our king of peace our king of righteousness, and is our priest as well. Well, today we pick up the story in chapter 15 right after that. And I want you to know, church, that I had really good intentions of making it all the way through chapter 15 today. But with your snickers, you can tell that we won't. Um, so we'll, we'll just take our time. I, I know that's a, that's a, a, a repeating record, but I, I want to make good progress through this, but I don't want to miss anything, and so uh, we're just going to cover part of this, uh, and then we'll cover the next part, uh, Lord willing, the, the second half of chapter 15 in three weeks. Next week, uh, my wife and I are going to be gone. We're, we've got an out-of-town wedding to, to be a part of, uh, some dear friends of ours that uh, their oldest son is getting married, and so Jonathan is going to preach, and uh, it's going to be a blessing to you. I look forward to hearing that myself when it's posted on the on the website um, but then the week after that as John mentioned is our missions emphasis week and we're going to have a special guest preacher that has devoted his life to uh, bringing the gospel to nations that are closed to the gospel so we can't even really give you his name so uh, I commend that week the whole week to you uh, the times of prayer early in the morning um, as well as uh, Friday Saturday and Sunday morning I really encourage you to be a part of that, um, not, not because of what you'll learn, uh, not because of just getting an update from our missionaries, which is a good thing, uh, but so that God would use this as an opportunity to grow our hearts to be likened unto his that includes the nations, and that we would consider how God might use us to bring the gospel to the nations. And so please, please make that a priority to be a part of that if this is your church home. So this morning we're going to be in chapter 15. I, I'm only going to focus this morning on the first six verses, but it really does kind of go together as a unit. And so by way of context, to help us understand the first six verses, I want to read the whole chapter, and then we'll dive into those first six verses. Here's the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you that um, we can know with assurance that these are the very breath of God. And we ask now that you'd speak to us from it. As we open this book, Lord, we, we pray that you would bring a word, as you did to Abram, that you would bring a word to us, God. And that you would make us not just more intelligent about what this says and what this means, but Lord, that you would use these truths to transform us, to look more like Jesus, so that we would be a people set apart and holy unto you and useful in your mission to bring the gospel to the nations and to build your kingdom. So we ask that you would do that this morning through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Abram defeats the northern armies and drives them out and after he meets with the two kings after that victory then he has a vision now the visions that he has are different than dreams there's two of them in this chapter in chapter 15 two visions that abram has the first that we'll cover this morning in verses 1 through 6 where the lord reiterates his promise of descendants to uh, to Abraham, that, that he's promising to, to give him offspring and that there will be many. And then the second vision is in verses 7 through 21 that we'll cover the next time we're in this book in three weeks, where God reiterates his promise to give him the land. So it's a t- twofold promise. It's a promise of offspring and it's a promise of land. He gave him this, this promise first in chapter 12. And then he restated this, both of these promises in chapter 13. Now he's restating them again, and it won't be for the last time. And I find it curious that, that God continues to restate and reiterate and, and reconfirm his covenant promises to Abraham. And I can't help but think it's because it's for the same reason that we need to be reminded of the gospel, that we need to be reminded of God's promises because we are a people who tend to forget. We are a people who tend to get our eyes off of what God's promises are and on to the worries and cares of the world and the rewards of the world. And we, we lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of God's promises. And we need to be reminded, just as Abram needed to be reminded of God's promises to him. And so he restates them again in chapter 15. So let's look at this first vision. He says in verse 1, after these things, after the the defeat of the northern army, and he returns, and he has that encounter with the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Then the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So there's two things I want us to note from verse 1. And the first is that the word of God, the word of the Lord, came to Abram in a vision. These visions, as we noted earlier, that Abram has here in chapter 15 are not like dreams. These are supernatural manifestations of God to Abram. Bible scholars call these theophanies. Theophanies are a a manifestation of God to man. Most times, many times, these theophanies include a visible 
uh, representation of God, that the presence of God is, is noted visibly uh, to whomever the theophany is being given. And we see that in both of these uh, visions in different ways. But always in these theophanies, it includes an audible word from God, a, a word, a, a message from the Lord. Now, this was not too terribly unusual in that time. As we go throughout the Old Testament, we read these stories that include these kinds of supernatural manifestations of God, where God has a word for people. We see that in Abraham's life. We see that in Isaac and the other patriarchs. We see that in Moses. We see that in the prophets. And so it is maybe not common, but it's certainly more common than we see in the New Testament that the Lord uses these kinds of supernatural manifestations of himself to bring a word to his people in that way. And this is not, of course, the normal way that God speaks to us today. Now, some would say that God never speaks to us this way today. And I personally wouldn't go so far as to say he never does, as to put arbitrarily a muzzle on God that he can't, but we certainly can agree that it doesn't seem that this is the normal way, that this is the usual means that God uses today to bring a word to his people. The means that God uses today, the normal way that God brings a word to his people is through his word, through the Bible, through the scriptures. This is how God speaks to his people today. Today, God speaks to us through his word. Abram didn't have the word, right? He didn't have the scriptures. There there was no Bible for him to pick up and, and, and learn about who God was and what Yahweh was like. But we do. And just think about that. Every time that we open up the word of God, every, every time that we open the scriptures, we have an opportunity for God to give us a vision in that sense, to speak to us, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the same God that appeared to Abram in these visions, that, that he has preserved this word throughout the generations so that we truly, as we, as we often thank him for, that, that we can know this to be the very the breath of God, that he speaks to us in that. That when we open this in our quiet times and when we open this book in our base groups and when we open it in the corporate worship of God's people, the corporate gathering of God's people like this morning, or when we open it in our family worship times, we get a vision of God that he he manifests himself to us and, and he speaks a word to us. May we treat God's word in a way that honors that. May we treat this book as the treasure that it is. And by that, I don't mean that we put it on a shelf so that it doesn't, so, so that it, it doesn't get messed up. What, what I mean by that is, is that, we would, that we would feast on what God speaks to us in this word. That we would saturate our lives with the, with the word that God is speaking to us from this book. Abram didn't have a Bible. He didn't, he didn't have the scriptures. There was no such thing. And so for Abram, he, he shows up, God shows up to him in a vision and brings him a word. And what is the word that God brings to Abram in this first vision? He said, not Abram, I am your shield, your very your, your reward shall be very great. So God says three things here. Number one, maybe the Lord said that because Abram was afraid. He had just driven off this coalition of armies from the north out of Canaan. And perhaps he was afraid that they would return for revenge and, and take revenge out on Abram and his little group of 318 men. Surely they couldn't win again. And so maybe Abram was afraid that they would return. And so God's main word in this whole chapter, though the rest of the time God speaks to Abram in this chapter, he's responding to Abraham's lack of faith. He's responding to Abraham's wavering trust in God and his promises. But his word that he brings to him is don't fear. Don't fear. I am your shield. 
I am your shield, which was God's way of reminding Abram that God was his source of protection, that, that when Abram went into battle with his little band of 318 people against this vast army, that God was a shield, that God was the one who protected him, and, and it was only by God's grace and God's protection that he was given victory, and that the Lord was still with him and still his shield for whatever he would face in life. God, God being our shield is a common theme and, and common um, source of comfort in the Psalms. Consider some of these, Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, as my shield, in him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. And similarly, the Lord is reminding Abram here that he is his shield. He is figuratively the shield behind which Abram would find protection as long as he stayed behind that shield. But then thirdly, God says to Abram in verse 1, your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. What does he mean by that? Well, remember what Abram had just done. He had just passed on the spoils of war. Remember that from last time, from the end of chapter 14. In order to keep his hands clean from that dirty money, in order to not get enmeshed with the immorality of Sodom or get lured into an unholy and unwise alliance with the king of Sodom, he passed on those spoils of war, which by right of conquest were his for the taking. They all belonged to him. All the spoils of war, all the livestock, all the precious metals, and all the people. They were Abrams for the taking. And yet he doesn't keep the spoils. He rejects them. And now God was telling him here that his reward shall be very great. Now there is a good level of debate about what this reward that the Lord is speaking to Abram about really is. Some say that this reward is the promise of descendants and land, that, that God has been promising and reiterating the promises of that, that the descendants and the land that he promised, that that, that is his reward. And, and that seems to make sense given the context here, because the remainder of this chapter is this discussion that Abram has, or this, this complaint that Abram has, like, okay, you promised descendants, but why don't I have them? You promised the land, but why aren't I there? Why don't I possess it yet? Um, and so the context seems to suggest that that's what the reward is, but the Hebrew grammar seems to indicate that God was actually referring to himself as Abram's reward here. The King James Version translates this along with several other English translations, but the King James translates verse one this way. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I am your reward. In, in fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, has, a, has an entire sermon just on that phrase. I am thy great exceeding reward. And I would commend that to you. It's a, it's a blessing to to read. And so we don't, we don't know for sure, depending on how you translate the Hebrew grammar here of verse 1, the reward is either the descendants and the land that were promised to him, or the reward is God himself, that he is Abram's reward. And it could be read either way, but we know for certain what Abram's reward is not. His reward is not the spoils of war that were offered to him by the king of Sodom. He had rejected that offer. That was not going to be his reward. And, and regardless of whether the reward in verse 1 is the descendants in the land or if the reward is God himself, what is clear to us is that for Abraham, the source of his reward is God. 
whether it's God or the promises and the things that God has promised to give to him, the source of his reward is God. So we should ask ourselves, what is the source of our reward? What, what, what is the source of your reward for living and walking faithfully with Jesus Christ? What, what are you in this for? What's your why? Are we primarily looking for our reward from the world? Are we, are we in this for the trinkets that God would add to our life? Or like Abraham, are we looking for a reward from God? Is he your reward? Is he enough? Is he sufficient for you? So God wants Abraham not to fear. And he gives him two reasons. I'm your shield. And your reward is coming, and your reward is exceedingly great. But there's a problem here, and the problem is that Abram is struggling again. And we're going to continue to see ourselves in Abram as we walk through this study. We have already. He's struggling in his faith again. He's just had this victory over the invading army. He's just had this incredible worship experience with Melchizedek, and he's raised his hand to God Most High, and he's struggling to believe God. He's struggling to continue to trust that God is going to keep his promises. Listen to what he says in verse 2, verse 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He was a servant in Abram's house. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. So Abram's getting quite old now. Back in chapter 12, he was 75. In the next chapter, chapter 16, we're going to hear that he's 86. So he's somewhere in the middle, maybe his early 80s here. So he's getting older. And his wife, Sarai, is not getting any younger either. And she's still barren. She still can't have children. And so Abram's struggling to believe God. He's struggling in his faith to trust in God's promises. And it's almost as if he's complaining here, right? There's almost a sense that we get that he's, he's kind of griping to God. And, and, and even accusing God that, that God, you, you haven't kept your end of the bargain. You haven't provided me with an heir. You haven't done what you've said. After all, by the next chapter, it will have been 11 years since the promise of an heir and still no heir. And so he, it's almost as if in verse 3 he accuses God, you've given me no offspring. And so he begins to think, maybe, maybe God needs help. And so I'll come up with an alternative plan. And, and didn't we see this just two chapters ago when there was a famine in the land and instead of trusting that God would be a source of provision, he takes matters into his own hands and he goes down to Egypt and gets into all kinds of trouble down there. He hasn't learned his lesson. I see myself in Abram, I don't know about you. He thinks God needs his help, and so he comes up with an alternative plan. Maybe the servant of my house, maybe, maybe this Eliezer of Damascus, this, this servant, maybe he can be my heir. Maybe he can, I, I can help God out here. I don't, want, I don't want these promises to fall flat, this thing of turning, in me, turning me into a great nation and, and causing me to be the blessing of all nations. That sounds good, and so I'm going to help him out here. I'll let this guy be my heir. And according to that culture, that was actually something that was acceptable in the land of Canaan. To the peoples of that culture and that time and that place, that if you didn't have an heir of your own, that you could let a servant in your household be an heir, but not for God. And so Abram comes up with this alternative. He comes up with his own plan and substitutes it for God's plan. How many of you have ever waited on God to keep his promises for so long that it seemed as if you would die before they came to pass? How many of you have waited on God's promises 
for so many years and for so long that you got impatient for God to keep his promises and, and his timeline didn't match up with your timeline and so you were tempted to come up with an alternative plan and substitute that for God's plan. That's exactly what Abram does here. He's struggling. He's struggling to believe God's promises and he's losing patience and he's losing hope. But God, here's the, here's the great thing. God uses the occasion of Abram's unbelief and Abram's impatience with God's timeline to display his own grace to Abram. How does God respond to Abram's unbelief and Abram's impatience and Abram's complaining and griping and perhaps accusation that God is not keeping his promises? How does God respond to that? Verses 4 and 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So in, in response to Abram's wavering trust in God, lacking faith in God, and, and practically accusing God for not keeping his promises and not giving him an heir yet, God doesn't rebuke Abram. God, in the face of that, doesn't get angry with Abraham. He doesn't smite Abraham with retribution, though he would have been well within his rights to do so. Instead, he graciously deals with Abraham. He first graciously and lovingly corrects him. No, Eliezer will not be your heir. You will have an heir who is your very own son. And then God leads Abram outside. Look at verse 5. It says he brought him outside. So now, so now in, this, in this vision, God is not just speaking audibly to Abram. Now he's showing up visibly to him. He's taking him by the hand and, and he's leading him outside. And he's, he's saying, Abram, look up. Look at the heavens. Look at the stars, Abram. If you can count all those stars, then you can count the descendants that will come from you. So shall your offspring be. And here we see Yahweh as gracious and loving and patient and humble. And this is the God that we love and know and serve and worship. And I'm so glad that when I struggle to keep believing God and his promises, when I'm wavering in my faith, when I grow impatient with God's timetable, when I'm tempted to take shortcuts and come up with an alternative plan in order to help God out, God shows himself to be equally gracious, equally loving, equally patient with me as he was with Abram. So how does Abram respond now to God's grace? Verse 6, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Church, this may be one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. It certainly should make the top 10. Certainly, it is one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. This verse is the key to chapter 15 that ties together these two visions. Abraham believed the Lord. Now, why does Abraham all of a sudden believe God? In verses 2 and 3, he's struggling. He's struggling to the point of saying, God, you're the one who isn't coming through. You haven't given me an offspring. And so he's struggling to believe in chapters, in verses 2 and 3. And then God says, no, I really am going to give you an heir. And so now, in, this, in verse 6, now he's believing. What, 
What changed? What made him believe? Well, if you look back in verse 4, there's a little phrase in verse 4 that's very critical for us to note here. Verse 4 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying this, This man, this Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. That phrase, your very own son, in Hebrew literally means one who will come from your own loins. One who will come from your own body, Abraham. So God was connecting the dots for Abraham here. And this is very critical for us to get. He was connecting the dots here. The dots are God's promise of a descendant. And the other dot is that through Abram, that God would bless the nations. How's that going to work? How is is God's promise of a descendant going to lead to blessing to the nations? How how is that going to happen? How is one going to lead to the other? God is connecting the dots here for Abram, and it's very important that we see this as well. He was reminding Abram that there was a promise in the garden, and it's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, go back there with me. Keep a finger here at Genesis 15, and flip, flip back to Genesis chapter 3. As you recall, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They, they fell from grace, and God came down, and uh, he, he was giving curses to mankind. As this is, this is a, these are the consequences of your sin, and they were dire, and they were desperate, and they were hard. But he not only curses Adam and Eve, he curses the serpent as well. Look at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. We've looked at this before, but we would do well to be reminded of it at this point. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring, the, the, the offspring of Satan, and her offspring, he, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. In other words, when we, when we looked at that, we said that what we learned from that is that there, there's a promise of one who is coming from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of Satan and defeat sin and death for all God's children for all time. And we've been tracing that seed of promise as we've been making our way through Genesis. We, we traced that seed of promise through Adam and Eve and their son, Seth. And then we traced that seed of promise through Noah and his sons. And then we got to chapter 12 and we saw Abraham and we, and we recognized that, that God was saying, I'm, I'm bringing that seed of promise through you, Abraham. There's going to come one from you who will crush the head of Satan. And if we fast forward a few chapters in Genesis, we'll see that this was partially fulfilled in Abraham's son, Isaac. But Isaac wasn't the fulfillment of this promise, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. He was just another link in the chain. The chain was going to continue. It was going to continue through Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob's son Joseph, and so on and so on. And of course, we know that ultimately the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of promise would be Jesus of Nazareth. And we looked at the genealogies in the book of Luke and we saw how he traced the seed of promise all the way to Jesus, the promised Son of God, who did crush the head of of the serpent who did crush Satan when he died on the cross for the sins of mankind. When he died a substitutionary death on that cross, defeating sin and death for all those whom God would save. And all those whom God would save would include people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every family of the earth. So now we see how the dots are connected, right? The promise of the descendant, the promise of one who would come from your loins, 
will be the source of blessing to all nations because through him will come one who will crush the head of Satan and that will be the redemption of all those whom God would save and all those whom God would save included all nations, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so that's how those dots get connected. That seed of promise was coming through Abram and it would go through his son, Isaac, but it would continue until the promised son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, who would die for the sins of man. And that is who God was referring to when he speaks to Abram in verse 4, and he says, there is one, your heir will be one who comes from your loins. He was referring to the Messiah to come. This is cleared up for us, thankfully, by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul clears this up for us in Galatians Chapter 3, in that passage, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is teaching the church in Galatia about uh, how we're not saved by what we do, we're not saved by following the law, We're, we're, we're rescued from what we deserve by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And in verse 16, Paul offers commentary on this section from Genesis 15. He says this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, I love how Paul is picking apart the word of God. He's exegeting Genesis here. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So he clears it up for us here. When God was talking to Abram about one who would come from his loins, he wasn't just talking about Isaac, but the long-term ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was the Son of God, the Savior and rescuer of sinners. And apparently Abram got it. God had connected the dots for him. He believed the Lord. He saw what these promises were all about. He recognized at this point that these promises of descendants and land and and a, and, and a nation were, were not just about him having a big family and being the father of a nation, a father of nations. It was about much more than that. That these promises were about God enacting his redemptive plan to rescue sinners from the judgment that they deserve. God was showing Abram here how sinful man could be saved, how sinful man could be rescued and and redeemed and reconciled back to God. What God was doing here was preaching the gospel to Abraham, which is exactly what Paul tells us in that same chapter out of Galatians chapter 3. Listen to verses 7 and 8. He says, knowing then that it is those who that those of faith who are the sons of God and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's us. The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what we have in Genesis chapter 5, verse 6, and the reason why this is such an important verse is because Genesis 15, 6 is the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of how sinful man is saved and rescued from certain and deserved punishment. Because Moses writes here, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is something that we think we only find in the New Testament, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works. But here it is in the Old Testament too. So apparently the, the, the gospel message didn't change. There's only one way of redemption for sinful mankind, and it's always been this one way through Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross. So how was Abraham declared righteous? How was he justified before God? Was it by following the law? No. They didn't have the law. It it was going to be 430 more years before they had the law. And here, he's declared righteous. He's justified. The word justified means declared righteous. Righteous. 
And the word righteous means to be in right standing with God. And so Abraham now is in right standing before God, and they don't even have the law. So it can't be through following the law. Was it through his circumcision, which was what the Jews would later teach? Of course not. Because God's not going to give them circumcision as a sign of the covenant until chapter 17. And he's declared righteous before God in chapter 15. So what is the basis of Abraham being declared righteous and, and, and being justified before God in Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God. It was faith. And what did he believe? We've already, we've already been told by Paul that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. This is when God preached the gospel. So Abraham believed the gospel. He, he had faith. He was trusting in God's plan to redeem sinners back to himself by placing their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the seed of the promise who would crush the head of Satan. This is what Abram believed. He had faith in God's plan to redeem sinners through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He believed the gospel. He believed the good news. And on the basis of that belief, on the basis of his faith in the coming Christ, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous. This is the great central doctrine of the Protestant Reformation justification by faith alone. Martin Luther said that the, the, the justification by faith alone is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And he was right. Because the church that affirms justification by faith alone stands and the church that rejects justification by faith alone falls. Literally, it, it, it falls from grace. It ceases to be the bride of Christ. This doctrine ended up marking what the Catholic Church would later refer to as the great schism in the church, the great divide, where there are those on one side who affirm that mankind, sinful mankind, is only justified by faith in Christ alone. And on the other side are those who reject that and say it is faith in Christ, but also this and this and this and this. Religious works and religious deeds and religious observances. This encounter with the Lord in this vision and Abram's response here of believing the Lord and, and God counting that belief, God counting that faith as the basis, the ground for his being counted righteousness. This Old Testament encounter that we're looking at here is, is covered in three very key New Testament passages. One is Romans chapter 4 that we covered when we went through the study of Romans. The other is Galatians 3 that we've that we've looked at a couple of verses from, and the other is James chapter 2. And in those passages, the New Testament writers, both Paul and James, explain that we cannot be made righteous by anything that we do. We cannot be made righteous by our religious acts, our religious observances, our trying hard to be good, or anything that we would do. The only way that we can be justified, the only way that we can be declared righteous and be put in right standing before a holy God is by faith in Christ alone. These New Testament writers explain that we, we have no righteousness of our own, that we are not righteous, and in fact, our meager attempts at righteousness are just filthy rags. It is as if we're trying to clean a dirty floor with a muddy mop. Even our attempts to make ourselves acceptable to God by our own efforts are the essence of unrighteousness. We have no hope of achieving righteousness of, of our own. We can't earn righteous, by, righteousness by trying to be better or do more good or do less bad. But our only hope to be righteous is not by trying to earn righteousness but to be made righteous by a righteousness that is given to us. And that is what happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life for us and achieved the righteousness that we never could. By faith in him, we are given his righteousness like the 
the hymn that we sang before this, that we are, we are clothed with the robe of Jesus' righteousness. That's the only basis on which we can stand before a holy God and be made righteous. This is how Moses puts it in Genesis 15, 6, and it mirrors the way Paul would later write about it. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That, that word counted there is an accounting term. And when we look, went through Romans, we saw the Greek equivalent of that term. When Paul is explaining how the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the one who places their faith in Christ. That it was as if the righteousness of Jesus gets moved over into our account before God. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our meager, filthy attempts at righteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son Jesus. And that the ground of that imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by anything that we do. And each of those New Testament passages, Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2, points back to this chapter in Genesis, Genesis 15. And this verse, Genesis 15, verse 6, as the very heart of the gospel. And so if you're here this morning and you're, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you're, you're an unbeliever. The bad news for you is that you have no righteousness of your, of your own. And because you have no righteousness of your own, you are unacceptable before God. And you can't change that. And that predicament is as hopeless as it is dangerous. There's nothing that you can do to change that predicament of being unrighteous before a holy God. You have no answer. But the good news is that God's son, Jesus Christ, was sent on a rescue mission to redeem sinners like us back to himself. He lived the perfect life that we never could. He achieved the righteousness that we never could because he perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly obeyed the law. And he achieved that righteousness. He has it, that which we could never earn. And by faith in him, by trusting in his finished work on the cross, when he died in our place, he took our, the punishment of our sins upon his shoulders and he offers to us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredible exchange. That by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross as our only hope for rescue from what we deserve, that he takes the punishment of our sin on his shoulders and he gives us the robe of his righteousness to wear before God. That is a good trade. And so if you place your faith in this Jesus, unbeliever, if you place your faith in that Christ, what he promises is that your sins will be placed on his shoulders your sins will be forgiven and you will be given the righteousness of Jesus as your own. It is credited to your account and you are adopted into the family of God as his son or his daughter and he gives you an eternal home that awaits you. And so if that describes you this morning, I beg of you, trust in Christ alone. Stop trying to earn God's favor by doing good works. Stop trying to earn God's favor by, by trying not to be bad as if you could clean your life up enough. No, that's just cleaning a dirty floor with a muddy mop. Instead, come to Christ in faith. Trust in him as your only hope for forgiveness. And he will forgive you and give you his righteousness and make you his. I would love to talk to you about this. I would love to speak to you more about how to know Christ in this way. Uh, there's a connect card in the seat backs in front of you, and I would encourage you uh, that if you want to trust in Christ, uh, just to let me know. Just mark that so that we can uh, get back in touch with you and encourage you in your walk with Christ. And the fact that we find this good news, not just in the New Testament, 
but in the Old Testament as well. In the very beginning of the Old Testament, in the first book of the Old Testament, reminds us that the gospel is not plan B. It's not, it's not as though there was a plan A, and, and God's plan A was to uh, cause a nation to, be, to, to rise up through Abraham, that, that they would be his chosen people, and that he would do all his works through them, and, but they messed it up. They, they sinned against God, and so they, they totally messed up God's plan A, and so now God has to come up with a plan B, and so his plan B is to send Jesus. No. The Lord Jesus Christ has always been his plan A, and there is no plan B. Plan A was always God sending his son, the seed of the woman, fully God and fully man, to be a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of man. That was always his plan A. The gospel is God's only plan for redeeming sinners back to himself. Whether you're a New Testament saint or you're an Old Testament saint, the only means by which sinners can be redeemed back to a holy God is through faith in the Messiah, by faith in the sacrifice of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we should not forget that a very, very important part of this plan A was that through Abraham, through this seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All the peoples, all the tribes, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's plan A, this gospel always from the very beginning had the nations in mind. And we're told in Matthew's gospel and elsewhere how that part of plan A is fulfilled when we're told in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. To take this gospel message, the, the, the message of this good news, the message of justification by faith in Christ alone to the lost people around us, here and to the ends of the earth. May we be found faithful to that mission. Let's pray.